State your name for the record. Brian L. Fry. Uh, what are your preferred pronouns? Uh, he, him. Have you prepared a haiku for us? I have. I actually prepared it quite some time ago. It goes nice. like this. The bramble bush blooms only rarely and alone, but oh, the fragrance. This, you can't hear it, uh, is the sound of one hand clapping. That is brilliant. Thank you. Um, so would you say you're the kind of person who plays it safe or uh, lives life dangerously? <laughs> I like to live dangerously because I want to play it safe. Nice. I love that answer. What would you say your favorite color is? Uh, my favorite color is lavender. It's a great choice. Thank you. Thank you. I think it looks good on me. Awesome. Um, okay, so as you know, part of the, the process is Dadaism. And um, so the next question I would like to, to ask you is, uh, would you mind making up a word and telling me what it means? <laughs> Mixaplex. Love it. What does it say? It says, I'm really glad to be here. Excellent. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. All right. Uh, now we're going to cue the theme song and get going. This time, we're nowhere to start. Breaking the rules. We're tearing it apart, apart. Randomized, synthetic, breaking through the mold. Hello, my children. Uh, I am Lynn Collet. This is Actual Artists, where we explore the intersection of technology, art philosophy, and AI. And uh, today we have uh, the incredibly brilliant uh, Brian Fry. Brian, uh, how are you and how are things? What's going on? I'm great. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I, I really appreciate the, uh, the incredibly generous introduction. Of course. Okay, so I guess uh, we will start with uh, probably the hard question and the good stuff. Let's just jump right into it. So you've actually spoken on the AI discussion before and sort of the intellectual property end of it. And I think that's really interesting because um, when it comes to discussing copyrights, like both sides of the discussion in AI um, have thoughts and feelings and ideas on how to use copyright to sort of get to where they want to go uh, in the greater scheme of things. Um, but I think the question I would ask is, do we need uh, new or different copyright laws? Um, and, and what does this all mean more broadly? Thank, thanks, Lynn. I, I, I think that's a great question <clears throat> because, because I think it prompts us to ask why we created copyright in the first place 
what we wanted to do and what it ought to look like, if anything, depending on what we want to to accomplish, right? So I, I, I think a lot of people have a tendency to think about copyright as fundamentally a way of giving people control over how what they create is used. And in a kind of superficial way, I think that's true. But I don't think it's what copyright was for. And and I don't I don't think it was ever what what copyright was for. Fundamentally, copyright has always been a a, a tool of social policy intended to subsidize and thereby encourage the production of things that we think consumers want but but wouldn't otherwise get and it was really effective for a long time right especially when making works of authorship available to the public was really costly burdensome and risky and that's been true for for hundreds hundreds of years right we invented copyright in response to the invention and distribution or rollout of the printing press, right? Which made the creation or rather the reproduction and distribution of works of authorship considerably less expensive than it had ever been in, in human history, right? But it was still costly to, to make and distribute works of authorship. And so we needed a way to enable publishers <laughs> to confidently invest in the reproduction of copies, many copies of works of authorship in order to make them available to to the public. And that costliness persisted for a really long time, right? The world we're living in today, however, is a new and different one in which the cost of reproduction and distribution has effectively reached zero, although you can add additional costs if you want to for expressive or aesthetic purposes, right? You you can make it costly to reproduce and distribute works of authorship, but it's for a reason. It, it's a choice to do so, not because you have to, right? The internet and digital technology mean that you can get ideas out to essentially everyone, uh, is essentially for free, right? And so the role of copyright I think has changed in really fundamental ways. And the question then becomes, what else are we trying to accomplish with, with copyright? And, and one of those things has always been the idea that you know, we use copyright as a way of subsidizing the creation of works of authorship in the first place. And that's sort of like, for a long time, we've kind of held on to that as the reason to, to maintain a kind of copyright policy in the way we've always understood it and we, the way we've come to sort of accept it as being normal, natural, and, and necessary. And, and I think that what AI is really doing for us is forcing us to reckon for the first time with what it means to live in a world where not only the reproduction and distribution costs of works of authorship have gone way down, but the costs of creation have gone down as well. So what do we do when 
creativity becomes cheap too, or at least the capacity to create works of authorship becomes less costly. And I don't think we've ever had to really wrestle with that question before. And I think that's why the experience of AI and trying to understand what that means for people interested in the creation of works of authorship is so traumatic for so many people, right? Some people really love it and they, they see what it does and it's incredibly exciting and, and, um, and productive for them and other people are really scared by it. But I think that's because it's showing us something new and different that we haven't experienced before. I think that's that, that last point especially is, uh, is very sort of poignant because uh, it's like, it's been my experience anyway that nobody's having like a neutral reaction to it. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, there have been uh, reactions that are intense to put a bit, to, to, to put a, a label on it um, from people who uh, create uh, the conventional way and people who create the new way and people like me who are sort of in between. Uh, everybody has strong, strong feelings, but it's it's such a new thing that like, we don't even know what the rules are, you know. I, does anybody know what the what the rules are for, you know, working with technologies like this? Well, I, you know, and I think that's a great way. <clears throat> I think that's a great way of putting it, right? Because it seems to me that what you part of part of what's causing what you're observing is the fact that I think everyone realizes that this is a really important development. But I think no one's really sure exactly why. And no one really knows exactly what to expect. And so when they're looking for rules or when they're looking for obligations or they're looking for a way of conceptualizing what's taking place, they look to things they know, right? We, we like to hang on to things that we know. And we've had copyright. We've had the idea of ownership literary ownership or creative ownership for a really long time. And so that's really familiar to us. And so that's something that we want to, we want to hang on to. And when people start to see that erode or even just change and become something different, I think it's really disconcerting to them. Right. And, and, and I think that that's one thing that AI is doing in a really profound way. So my sort of preliminary take, as it were, on, on AI, and I, and I say preliminary because it's 100% open to change, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm viewing a developing phenomenon in the same way as everyone else. And so I'm very open to the idea that I could be missing something or even be totally wrong in, in my assessment. But when I see... <clears throat> AI and how it works, it seems to me that fundamentally what AI is doing us is showing us the building blocks of expression, right? Interesting. It's showing us how people go about communicating ideas. It's showing us the elements of genre. It's showing us how we kind of conceptualize ways of putting together communication in ways that other people understand. And it's showing us that a lot of that 
although hard for us to do, can actually be automated. And my hope is that the real promise of AI is that it liberates us from doing that kind of basic creative labor and frees us up to do the deeper, richer, more meaningful yeah. forms of creative labor that we're actually that we're actually really good at. That that that's our kind of comparative advantage. Totally. Well, as you know, my um, my background is sort of all over the place. I've done fine art, I've done comics, but um, you know, one thing that really strikes me uh, uh, about the use case for AI is that uh, it's very flexible. You know, you can you can use it to generate an entire image, or you can use it to do colors or backgrounds or enhancements, like the zoom in button from CSI that literally exists now. We have an upscaler that adds detail. It's incredible. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, but I, I, I think um, the, thing, the thing that really excites me about it is like um, the AIs, for art anyway, are uh, very sort of broken, if that makes sense. Um, you know, like, and it's because, you know, whenever you take like 5,000 years of human art and you sort of crunch it down into one thing and then you sort of tie all the pieces together with words, you sort of learn quickly that, oh my gosh, those words don't mean what I thought they meant. <laughs> and, you know, that sort of um, makes it more interesting to explore and play with. And then there's like, um, I invented a technique called noise painting where you create noise patterns that um, sort of cause the AI to go off the rails and break the denoiser, which is how it assembles the image. And uh, you can get it to do some absolutely crazy things. And I think what I've discovered personally in, in my own practice is that um, you end up with a system that is is not only new and not only different, um, but it's it's a system that can create types of art that human beings couldn't easily do by themselves by hand. Mm -hmm. um, and some of it's like anamorphic effects, you know, like uh, things that play with your sense of perspective in novel ways, because a computer, a computer can't visualize in the way that human beings can. So like you can twist perspective in five different ways and uh, end up in a place where your human brain would get in the way of you making that if you tried to do it. And that that's why it excites me, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, right? And one concept that's really been looming large for me lately, which I think relates to the experience that you're describing, is Freud's description of the uncanny, right? Interesting. So Freud defined the uncanny as that which makes the familiar unfamiliar. And I like to add a, like a little Philip to it and say <clears throat> that what he meant, I think, was that the uncanny is that which shows us that what we thought was familiar was always unfamiliar. We just couldn't see it, right? Oh. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's what AI is doing. It's showing us the structure of how we communicate in a way that we couldn't previously conceptualize. And I think that that's something that technology does all the time, sometimes in really banal ways and other times in really profound ways, 
right? So one example that I always go back to is my experience as a scholar of seeing the kind of digital revolution roll in and moving from working in analog format to working in a digital format and realizing that something as simple as the <clears throat> as the introduction of OCR, for example, made it possible to know things about the historical record that it was essentially impossible to know without it. Oh, really? Yeah, because without OCR, right, there's no way to do a kind of generalized word search across a large range of historical documents, right? So if you want to find something, right, you either have to go through all those documents yourself looking for that thing that you want to find, or you have to rely on somebody else already having decided earlier that that thing you want, want to look for was important and therefore it should be indexed across all those documents. And what OCR did, and it seems so simple, but it's actually really profound, is enable you to create an index on the fly and just see which documents talk about something. And I think, you know, Google Books is kind of a version of that, right? It enables you to use a, a huge range of documents and just see where people use particular words and pull meaning out of that that wouldn't have been available otherwise. And I think in some respects, in a very limited, and this is only like kind of one small part of what makes AI exciting and, and, and productive. But one of the many things it does, right, is that by aggregating vast amounts of information and enabling people to, to play with that information in new ways, it shows us things about the way that information is structured, the way that ideas are structured, the way that communication is structured that we couldn't see without it. That's fascinating. Um, but I think that the flip side of that, and this would be like something else uh, that you've spoken about at length, but maybe not in this particular way. Um, well, well, one thing that uh, AI has, has sort of done, at least in some circles, is sort of prompted um, redefinitions of words that are very, very important. Um, words like plagiarism, you know, plagiarism has a meaning, right? And, and you've written at length about what plagiarism is and what plagiarism means. Um, but I feel like when people talk about plagiarism, at least as it relates to AI, uh, that definition goes completely out the window. You know, we're talking about a different animal entirely at this point. Does that make your job harder? <laughs> it makes my job more exciting, which is, which is what I'm looking for, right? So when, when the world changes, it's my obligation, at least I think as a scholar, to change with it and to describe the world I see as opposed to the world that I'm familiar with. And so the new and unfamiliar is really exciting because that's, that's the challenge, I think, of being someone who's, whose job, <laughs> at least as I understand it, is to try to understand what's happening and, and describe it. So I... I, I Again, I totally agree with you, right? That our concept of plagiarism is changing in a really fundamental way. And in a way, I think that makes people really uncomfortable. And this actually, I think, comes back to our earlier conversation about copyright law, right? So I said that, you know, copyright is something that's existed for a long time, long enough that everyone has kind of 
come to accept it as natural and normal and required, even though it's actually a policy tool that we created in order to achieve a particular end. For me, the next step is realizing that the concept of plagiarism is the same thing, or rather, right, that the concept of literary ownership or artistic ownership or intellectual ownership of expressions and ideas is, is effectively the same thing. It's a kind of proto-copyright, but it's one that's existed for so long that we've forgotten, long since forgotten, that it was always a way of people, in effect, exerting a form of control over expressions and ideas, of exerting a kind of ownership over expressions and and ideas. And I think the one of the things that makes me really excited about AI, and I think that makes people, many people, really nervous about or scared of or offended by or upset about AI, is I think that it undermines a lot of our received wisdom about what it means to be an author, what it means to create something new, what it means to be original or creative. Because I think what AI does in a lot of ways is show us that what a lot of, a lot of what we have internalized as being original or creative is actually conventional and kind of banal. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? There's nothing wrong with convention and banality. In fact, I think we need it in order to express ideas, right? If you were truly radically creative and original, the problem would be that no one would understand what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> right? You need that, you need that substratum of banality and conventionality in order for people to understand what you're saying. But what makes what you're doing creative and novel and exciting is what you kind of layer on top of that. And I think what's exciting for me about AI is that it automates the banality part and enables us to focus on, to my mind, the more exciting creative expressive part that we lay on, on top of it. The problem being that a lot of people have a lot invested in the skills that it takes to generate that kind of conventional banal content, right? And it's scary. To, it it's scary to them to see that automated because it used to be that they had a kind of guild type monopoly over it. That seems to be that seems to be sort of dissipating. But I think we should see it as 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 a kind of liberatory sort of moment. Right. In the sense that it frees us from the burden of having to worry about the conventional and the banal and enables us to focus on what we want to say, what we want to express. I think for me, what's exciting about AI is it gives us permission to be artists without having to worry about how we got there. True. You know, I'm sort of back to uh, one of the earlier things you were saying is uh, I don't think you... Uh, mentioned it specifically, but I think you know, sort of one of the things we're sort of treading around quietly, anyway, is uh, the theory of the commons and you know open culture in general. Um, I think you know with 
sort of the barrier to entry being lowered and more people being able to do it. Uh, we, and, and, you know, everything sort of, at least the assumption being that it's public domain by default, you know, artists can uh, get in, you know, just go straight to creating and then they can remix each other like crazy. And uh, we're, we're, we're seeing this entirely new culture of, you know, prompt sharing, for example, um, coming up. And um, what I'm concerned about is that I think, I, I think that's really cool, but uh, on the other hand, I'm worried that, you know, if we, if we introduce, you know, intellectual property to this, you know, uh, that disappears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And, and, and the reason I think that you're so right when you say that is that, as I said earlier, intellectual property and copyright specifically are not good in and of themselves, right? They're a means to an end, not an end in themselves. The reason we created these policy tools was to achieve a goal. And that goal was to encourage people to invest in producing the kind of creative works that we love and and want more of, right? And so I, I think you're right. The question we should be asking is, are these tools fit to purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Do we need them in order to make the technology that we have today work or are they actually working against the technology that we've developed? In other words, oh, yeah. it, to put it another way, right? To put it in kind of economic terms, right? Copyright was a policy tool designed to solve market failures in the production of works of authorship. And the problem for copyright is that technology has now solved those market failures. And so the policy is designed to solve a problem that doesn't exist anymore, at least doesn't exist in the same way right. that it used to exist. And when, and when the world changes, we need a new policy, right? When technology removes the problem or changes the problem, our policy responses need to change as, as well. And I want to bring this back really quickly mm-hmm. to, to something we were talking about earlier as well, right? Okay. So you talked about the idea of, of open culture and remixing and access and, and how that is in tension with, with copyright. And again, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think that that's a really important thing to keep front of mind. But I would observe that in addition to copyright, our concept of plagiarism is also, in many respects, antithetical to, yeah. to open culture, right? We just tend not to see it in that way, but it's a form of ownership as well. And that expectation of attribution <clears throat> and that insistence upon control over how things are used or how people are allowed to do meaning, I think is something that operates as a kind of de facto constraint on how people believe they're allowed to accept themselves. It's a rule we internalize without even realizing that it's a rule. And I think reflecting on why that is, what it means, and how it constrains our ability to express ideas is something worth considering. Okay, so riddle me this. Um, Why is authorship and attribution important to begin with? 
Yeah. So this is an incredibly fundamental question. It's actually the premise of the book project I'm working on right now, which is titled, tentatively titled, An Economic History of of Plagiarism. So the, the question I'm asking is, why did we invent authorship in the first place? And I think the answer is that we invented authorship because prestige became valuable or rather because being the source of a idea or the source of really anything that people care about became valuable, right? And so I, I think we invented authorship for the same reason that we care about celebrity in, in some ways, right? In the sense that the social value or the, the clout associated with having produced something that people find meaningful and care about became something extremely valuable. And therefore, the people who wanted to produce that kind of value collaborated <clears throat> collectively to, to protect it. And I think a lot of people like that. They, we, you know, because celebrity is dialectical. Right. I mean, celebrities want to be celebrities, but non-celebrities want celebrities too. Right. They're they're meaningful to the people who aren't celebrity. Right. And 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 so I, I think that that relationship is what caused us to create the idea of authorship, which is really in many fundamentally the idea of ownership. Right? When we say someone's the author of something, what we're saying is that they're, they're the owner of it. Right? And interestingly, unlike, unlike copyright, which comes to an end, authorship is forever. That's a good point. But are we talking about, are we talking about like actual authorship or are we talking about the source of notoriety? Because You'll notice that like there aren't very many truly original ideas, um, but yeah. you know some of the expressions of those ideas are are very original, and it's it's kind of hard to, you know, draw the line and and say, you know, this came from here. Like for example, you know, you could always say, you know, Batman came from Bob Kane and Bill Finger, right? Um, but that's something that like one percent of the population knows. You know, most most people are just like, yeah, man, you know, Batman, whatever, do the thing. And, uh, you know, these these ideas and these concepts become sort of iconic in the culture as a whole. And even though they're they're still, you know, authored by someone and still under copyright, um, you know, they they sort of belong to everybody. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. There's there's no way to stop those things from being spread. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lynn, I, I think this is a really great and important point because for me, what it brings up is the overlap between copyright and trademark, which historically we've always thought of as being fundamentally distinct bodies of law, although journalists confuse them all the time. But from a policy perspective, we thought that copyright and trademark were intended to do very different things. But I think that as technology, especially AI, develops and starts to show us 
the internal workings of meaning making, it's starting to become clearer and clearer that they're actually closely connected with each other or even maybe two sides of the same kind of economic coin, as it were. So my friend Ed Timberlake said something that really stuck with me about, about trademark is that he said that trademark is the most poetic form of intellectual property because it's created by the public, not by the author, right? Trademark exists, right? Something like Batman is meaningful only because people find it meaningful, not because of what the person who created the concept invested in it, right? Lots of people create characters, not all those characters become meaningful, right? And so, I think the same thing is true of authorship, right? Lots of people become authors. Not all authors become meaningful, right? But authors don't necessarily become meaningful because of their own intrinsic virtues. They become meaningful because the works that they produce resonate with people for some reason. And as a consequence, that person as a source, that author, that concept, whatever it is, right, becomes something that kind of stands for something to people, right? But that's a value created by the public, not necessarily, or not at all, really, in some sense, a value created by whoever generated the thing in question. And, and that's not a criticism, it's just an observation about where meaning comes from. Interesting. So where do we go, do you think? I mean, just sort of knowing all of this, um, in your view, what does a better future look like? Yeah. I, so again, uh, a fantastic, really hard question. But I think the best response I can give to that is that we should be open to the idea of open culture meaning something much more open than we ever realized, right? So again, re returning to the question you asked earlier about copyright, right? I see copyright as a policy tool and policy tools are designed to wither away when we don't need them anymore. And I think we're at a kind of transition moment where we're starting to realize that copyright as a policy tool isn't doing the things from a kind of public policy perspective that we designed it to do anymore. And so it's time for us to look for new kinds of policy. And I'm not sure what those will look like yet, but I think the place to start is by saying the old policy doesn't make sense anymore because we don't need it. And so we should be asking, what can we do to solve the new problems rather than to try to solve, keep solving the problems that we've already solved? That's interesting. Yeah, um, that sort of reminded me of like uh, a couple of things. First that, you know, there's like, what was the statistic? It's like, it was seven major copyright owners that own like 90% of it. Now it's five. Um, Lawrence Lessig had an amazing uh, blog post about 10 years ago about some of the problems that are, are caused by copyright, you know, and like, so you, you go out and, you know, you, you say, hey, we're going to solve this problem, you know, with a policy change. 
and you end up in a place where, you know, yeah. the authors are dead. Nobody knows who owns the copyright and the work can't be, re can't be redistributed for a century. And, you know, uh, similar problems to that. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the further technology goes, uh, more complicated that seems to be getting. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think I think that's true. And one thing that's really been a little bit concerning, although I think it will eventually change to me, is that a lot of people who historically were very kind of pro open culture and pushing back against copyright did so in understandable kind of policy ways by pointing to traditional property concepts and saying that the way copyright is being used is inconsistent with what we understand about how people use what they own and care about. And therefore, we should restrict copyright in order to keep it consistent with people's understandings about people's kind of reasonable social understandings about what they're allowed to do and why they ought to be allowed to. In other words, essentially, we ought, copyright ought to track how people actually engage with information in the world. And I think that made a lot of sense for a long time. The problem is that I think a lot of those people, and to my mind, to some degree, Lessig is kind of implicated in this, became so focused on the idea of people being able to control what they own, right? They kind of propertized their view of the world, that they have a hard time, I think, rejiggering that view to deal with a world in which property in expression maybe doesn't make sense mm -hmm. anymore. And that, I, I, I guess, to my mind, and this is sort of like where the kind of relation between, um, you know, plagiarism concepts and copyright concepts become really interesting to me. Um, when, when everything about information becomes free, right? What becomes valuable, what remains scarce is clout, right? Is, yeah. is social value. And so to my mind, what we ought to be thinking about going forward is how to reconceptualize our world of expression, our world of originality, our world of creativity in a scenario where what we want people to do is focus on creating things that are meaningful to the public. And I'm not sure we really know how to do that very well, right? Because historically, we've kind of taken it for granted. We've, we've leaned on the public to tell us what's meaningful, and we use copyright as a proxy for, for controlling <laughs> the, like, it was sort of like a gamble, right? Produce as much as you can, whatever turns out to be meaningful, whatever people turn out to like, we're going to give you property in that. So we want you creators to be risk takers, which is good, right? to be risk takers in terms of what you produce in the hope that people are going to like it. Right. But, but now that that copies as a way of controlling production doesn't really make sense anymore because copies are, are free. Right. And copyright has just become a tax on consumption. I think we have to think about what it means to live in a world of production where what's scarce is, is celebrity, is clout, is fame, is the value is people just caring 
about what it is that someone produces and wanting to consume it, right? So, like as I was saying to my, like I was saying to my students the other day, the the, the paradox today, right, is that when you consume a brand, it doesn't become less valuable; it becomes more valuable, right? Mm-hmm. So, like the thing about copyright is like. It was premised on the idea that a work of authorship, the, the supply of a work of authorship doesn't, doesn't go down when you consume it, right? So an infinite number of people can consume a work of authorship and there's still an infinite amount available for people to consume. But what's different about celebrity, what's different about clout, what's different about a brand, right, is that not only does the supply not diminish with consumption, the supply increases, with consumption. It becomes more valuable the more people care about it. And I think that that's a dynamic way of thinking about value that's very different from the static way that we've historically thought about works of authorship. Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, one thing that uh, pops up in my mind when you say that is, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, Batman and Sailor Moon and uh, all these other huge media properties that people just love, uh, fan art, mm-hmm. you know, Yep. The supply uh, of the art coming down the tubes is one thing, but then the community is, yes, you know, that these people build are, yes. you know, sending new product into the system, which, you know, sort of trickles back down because the people who make it are like, oh, wow, that's cool. How can we do that? And uh, under the current system, they're, they're mostly free to do that, I think. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's just fascinating how, how, how culture in the 21st century, you know, we're one eighth of the way through it and we've already turned it back uh, into sort of its natural state as a two-way conversation rather than a broadcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 again, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the coolest things for me about fan art is that it tells us at least in a small way, why people find things meaningful. Right. In a way that the creators themselves didn't know. Right. I mean, that, I mean that's kind of the, the great kind of beautiful paradox of fan art. Right. Is that the people who are fans of a particular set of expressions and ideas find meanings in those expressions and ideas that the creators themselves didn't know were there. Right. And, and that I think is, is really exciting and, and cool and something that we should be thinking about as we think about creativity policy, right? The idea that the people who create things don't always know exactly what they mean. And maybe one of the reasons that things become important and valuable is not because of what the creators put in, but because of what the consumers found. Fascinating. That is really interesting. It's it's almost like uh, you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yes. So to speak. Yes. Well, I mean it's I mean I, I, I'm I'm kind of plagiarizing it from Roland Barthes, right? I mean it's kind of <laughs> it's a version of his thesis of the death of the author, right? Like Barth hypothesized that we live in a world where meaning is created by the consumer of the work rather than the author of the work, and that the author doesn't fully control the meaning, even though the author creates the work itself. And and I think that in a lot of respects, AI is introducing us to a world where the consumer and the author merge together in in a lot of ways. And I I think that's what's exciting about it, you know, is this whole, the whole premise 
of you know radical accessibility uh, in a way that because like people like me have been talking about radical accessibility for twenty years, you know, <laughs> since Napster at least. Um, but um, I, I think what we're seeing, you know, with with AI and and the reality of it is just that it's here. It it is here. The the line between art and artist yes. and you know, consumer and creator are gone now. And uh, it, it's, it's challenging for everybody, I think. Yeah, Lynn, that is so true. And what I find even more kind of baffling and wonderful and comically exciting about it is that it happened in the way we least expected. What do you mean? I, I don't think anyone anticipated that AI would end up being meaning or showing us what it did. And I think that's part of what makes everyone so surprised. Nice. Right? No one knew that machine learning would turn out to be a way of us telling us about ourselves. That's fascinating. Holding up a mirror, so to speak. Exactly. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. You know, there's a reason why you're my favorite guest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, everyone needs an amanuensis. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, uh, Brian, uh, I just wanted to tell you, I have. I think it's about time to wrap up. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, for popping on to my my humble little podcast again. And, uh, it, it's always a pleasure. Feel free to come back anytime. Um, so, uh, what do you have going on right now in terms of projects or books, or where can people find you? Oh, well, I, all my scholarship is on SSRN. Just look for Brian L. Fry. I've been producing a lot of legal scholarship using AI lately as a, as a way of kind of thinking about the medium and what it can tell us about ourselves as also, as well as a kind of artistic project for myself. Um, but I have some new work coming out soon uh, about, about copyright and about artificial intelligence. And then, as I said earlier, I've got a, a, a book project I'm working on as well, which will probably be coming out as chapters talking about the concept of plagiarism at different points uh, in in history and kind of how the concept of plagiarism developed and changed in relation to the economies of authorship in different societies. And then you can find me on Twitter and other social media sites at uh, Brian L. Fry, B-R-I-A-N-L-F-R-Y-E. 